Uh, the plan this week, uh, some of you hopefully have heard this, uh, if not, you will have some time, uh, is to just do a Q&A, kind of catch up on things. I'm banking on us having questions, or we'll just kind of recap and things like that. We, I did get texted one question from last week, so we will start with that. It gives you time to kind of go, all right, I want to ask about this, and maybe this leads to other things, uh, but we'll start with this one and then go from there. Uh, the time changed as evidenced by half the class is just not here. Uh, so <laughs> when they when they arrive for class during worship, that'll be, you know, I'm sure they'll be surprised. So uh, as a result of the Q&A as well, because of the recording, just to make sure, I'll try to restate. It'll be good for me to have clarification, but also for the recording uh, as that goes up. Okay. First question I got, or the only question I got uh, over over a text uh, was, if God gave the other nations to gods, uh, why does he get mad when Egypt has different gods they worship instead of him? Uh, so I've had a lot of time to think about this, which is good. Uh, Exodus chapter 2, we'll turn over there. Again, be thinking about your own, own questions, uh, and we'll just pursue things as they go. Uh, Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23. That's where we'll go. Uh, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And then from here, we go into the burning bush account and all of this. Uh, But this is our setup for why the exodus occurs. Injustice is happening to the people of Israel. They're crying out, uh, and God comes to bring justice to these these people. The reason we're looking at this passage, uh, because we know know, if we continued on, looked at the ten plagues and all of this stuff, uh, even prior to that with Moses just going and uh, with Aaron, uh, and showing this power of God and how the power we have is greater than the power you have. There's this interaction with uh, Pharaoh and his uh, magicians there in the court. The emphasis is not placed on uh, the gods here within Egypt. Uh, I do think that there is uh, a lot of parallel between the plagues that occur and how Egypt thought their gods functioned. Uh, it's similar to when Elijah is dealing with, uh, they have this uh, three years of drought. Uh, that's very much a, that's on bail sort of thing, because he's supposed to bring the rain, and he can't. And it's Elijah's God who stops it and then brings the rain again. Uh, so there is interaction between, oh, your God does this? Well, not really. Uh, you know, our God does that. Uh, and so I, I do think there's parallel with the plagues and the Egyptian gods and, and all of that stuff. But the emphasis is never on the gods of the other nations unless it's Israel don't follow after those other gods. When we get into the other nations, the emphasis is on uh, justice, uh, how, how they are conducting themselves. Indirectly, uh, it's the gods that are leading them in that direction. That's that's the problem here. That's the Psalm 82 problem, uh, that they are not uh, exercising their authority in the way that they should. 
but the problem that God has with these nations is how they are conducting themselves. Um, so we have this thing here about justice in Exodus 2. Uh, think about Jonah. Uh, think about Jonah. And I, I was going to turn there quick, but I really can't because I have to sing this song. Uh, it's Jonah. Uh, there we go. I know where it is. Uh, it's Jonah 3. Okay, we're dealing with the Assyrians. They're going to have their own set of gods that they believe in and follow and that they say are responsible for this, that, or the other thing. But Jonah's sermon is not, you need to disregard all of the other gods, you need to completely ignore them, all of this stuff. Uh, the sermon is, uh, this one here, um, yet 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown. The response of the people of Nineveh is, and this is verse 5, they believed God, called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Uh, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and in verse 7, here is his decree. By decree of the kings and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent uh, and, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then the next verse says, God saw that they repented of these things, that they stopped doing this unjust behavior. And so God relented from his disaster. They still believe in those other gods, though. Uh, and there's one more point we'll add to this. It's not they stopped believing in all these others. It's they took the God of Israel seriously uh, and oriented their, their, their lives towards him. And said, so we need to stop doing these unjust things and start doing these good things. Hey, uh, on Thursday mornings in that class, we've been in Daniel. Uh, and we are just in Daniel chapter 4 um, this past Thursday. I know where Daniel is. There we go. Uh, Daniel chapter 4. Uh, and up to this point, every chapter in Daniel, uh, at least up through four, begins with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. The, the focus is put on him at the, the beginning of the chapter. Jehoiakim is given into his hands. Um, and in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. In chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar builds this idol. In chapter four, you have Nebuchadnezzar, but it's written from his perspective. It's Nebuchadnezzar writing the chapter, describing an event that occurred to him. He becomes the focal point. Gentile king becomes the, the the writer of a chapter. It's just very interesting. Love the chapter. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar is the focal point of each of those chapters. And as we go through Nebuchadnezzar's story, in chapter 2, when Daniel tells him the dream and its interpretation, he says, your God is a God of God and uh, Lord of Lords, a revealer of mysteries. He doesn't say your God is the only God, your God is uh, exclusive, and all the other ones don't exist. He says Yours, your God is one of those gods, and he reveals mysteries. Well, he's being segmented, but he's also being included now into the discussion. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has an understanding somewhat of who Yahweh is. Chapter 3, he builds this giant uh, idol, uh, and he ends chapter 3... Uh, after the fiery furnace and all of this in Daniel with uh, a command to not worship or serve you know, any other god. We need to uh, bow before the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Uh, and then he follows that with, or you'll be torn limb from limb, your house will be burned. Okay, which is all very, that's, that's how they would conduct themselves. It's how Syria conducted themselves, how Egypt conducted themselves. We're going to destroy you if you don't do what you're supposed to do. Uh, that's how this worked. Uh, so there's still very much this behavior from the gods they believe in. Nebuchadnezzar hasn't necessarily let them go. Then in chapter 4, when he's humbled and all of this, he begins and ends the chapter elevating the God of Israel and calls him uh, God Most High. Okay, but we're not given the indication that Nebuchadnezzar says all these other gods, uh, uh, Marduk and all these others, they don't exist, they're not real. That's not the indication we're given. But Nebuchadnezzar begins to understand and seems to ultimately understand who Yahweh is. It says we need to follow after him and his example. Uh, and you could just throw that all under the kind of umbrella word justice. Uh, so, kind of answering that, uh, that first question, God gets upset with Israel uh, when they start to turn to these gods in the other nation because he is directly working with them. They understand, they should understand better than any other who Yahweh is. Uh, and when these other nations are around them, the expectation for them is not to drop all of their other gods and things like that. That is the ultimate hope. That's, we're, we're not saying that they can just keep that forever. That's the ultimate goal, but the first thing, and really the only thing that they're asked to do, that is good enough for them to be preserved and protected, because Nebuchadnezzar gets to continue because he acknowledges who God is. Uh, the, he's not the reason that uh, Babylon loses the kingdom. It's somebody else. Um, the reason why Assyria gets to continue is because they acknowledge who God is, even though they're still holding on to these other pieces. That's enough for them to continue as a kingdom. Pharaoh is a negative example where he refuses to acknowledge who Yahweh is, even after uh, these... Uh, example, the plea from Moses to say, let our people go and worship and all of this. He says, I don't know this God. I don't care about this God. I'm not letting you go. And then there's the interaction with the magicians and all of this. And he still says, I don't care. I'm not letting them go. And then you have plague one and two, and, and he still just refuses. Uh, and so by doing that, he's going to lose his kingdom. Okay? But that's the expectation placed on the Gentile nations. Israel, stay with God. You know who Yahweh is. Remain there. Don't go after others. The other nations uh, that are being led by these people that got, are these gods that God put in charge there, uh, your job is to do the right thing. These things are leading you in the wrong direction. Follow after me instead. Okay, questions that come off of that or new questions entirely. Go ahead. I have a new question entirely. Okay, um, right on. Did the fall of Satan occur at the same time as the fall of man? Okay. That's what this paper is for, by the way. Uh, I think three pages was super ambitious also. Now that we're... Uh, fall of Satan and fall of man was that at the same time. Um... I guess coming off of that is Exodus, I mean not Exodus, Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19, <laughs> talking yeah. about yeah, yeah. Satan being placed in the garden. Right. Okay. Uh, let's go to Ezekiel 28. That's the passage I put on one of our studies, but we didn't read it, we didn't have time to go into it, but I put it there as 
reference. <clears throat> okay, so at the beginning of Ezekiel 28, uh, 1 through 10, the prince of Tyre, real place, real dude, uh, is having judgment pronounced against him uh, because of his pride and all of this stuff. Uh, it's very much, I mean, think about Daniel chapter 4, the Nebuchadnezzar thing. It's God humbling the pride of uh, this ruling individual, except uh, Prince of Tyre is <laughs> going to remain prideful and com continue to commit injustice, uh, so his end is coming. Then when we get into verse 11... We have, we are given a, continue the lamentation for the Prince of Tyre, because this is not a good situation for him, and we are given a illustration to connect, like just how bad this is going to be. Uh, we'll just start reading there uh, in verse 12. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to them, say to him, thus says the Lord God, you are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God. And I'll just stopping there. <clears throat> the prince of Tyre, this is not referring to him literally here. This is an illustration because the prince of Tyre was not in Eden. Uh, this is long after this. Uh, so he, he was not actually in Eden, but there was something in Eden that conducted itself in a similar way to the prince of Tyre. Uh, and that led to uh, that led to consequences. Uh, so this is a comparative illustration uh, showing that the Prince of Tyre is going to suffer a fate similar to uh, a fate somebody else suffered. Okay, verse 13. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You are, anoint, you are an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You are on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Uh, and I might as well read this is the last verse. Yep. Uh, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more uh, forever. Uh, it would be, it, some have suggested, okay, this is talking about Adam, but that seems difficult. Uh, it seems difficult for a number of reasons. Uh, referring to this individual as a cherub multiple times, which uh, there are some differences, but cherubim and seraphim are very similar in the way that they are discussed throughout the Bible. They are spiritual beings. There's no doubt about that. Um, you could say angelic beings and all this sort of thing. And that's what is what this individual is referred to as multiple times. Verse 14, uh, then there again in verse 16, 
this cherub that was in the mountain of God in Eden. It says the garden of God, the mountain of God. Remember, those are both important places. It's sacred space language. Uh, and so you have this thing that was created, uh, and it was very good, and then it went its own way uh, and committed unrighteousness and all this. But it is not called a man. It's called uh, a cherub multiple times. This seems to be a, dis- a little bit further of a discussion on uh, this serpent thing that's in Genesis 3. Um, the question is, is the fall of Satan here, if that's what this is talking about, and I think that it is, uh, the Jews thought that it was as well. So really doesn't matter what I think, it's, that is what they thought. Uh, does this happen at the same time as the, the fall of man here? Uh, that is an interesting question. It seems like here, here's this thing, and it did it commit unrighteousness before, uh, or was this the first act? Like, is Genesis 3 so the first act we He get? was Go a ahead. created being, yes. correct? And then yeah. Genesis one thirty one says, all his creation, he said it was very good. He, would he say it was very good if <clears throat> Satan had sinned before? That's true, yeah. Well, yeah, and so the question is, like, at what point is the Genesis 3 thing the first time where it's, uh, where it seems to have have been thinking beforehand, uh, where what was what was our verse? Um, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. There in verse seventeen, uh, and so is there this thought because these spiritual beings are free will beings, just like we are. In fact, we parallel them in a lot of ways, uh, but we'll talk more about that as we move on. Uh, but they're free will beings, and so they have the ability to make wrong choices, and this is a wrong choice uh, that is made here. Uh, it seems that you have this individual, and there's more that come along, uh, as we've talked about, but you have this individual that decides, you know, I want to be like God, I want this power, I want these things, I can have all of that, uh, and then Genesis 3. Seems to be like that first carrying out of the action. Uh, And so it is punished there at that moment, just like Adam and Eve are punished in that moment. The ground is also cursed at that moment. Uh, Just a lot of consequences and punishment going on there. So it seems like those happen about the same time. That uh, the, the serpent that deceives man, that's its first act of rebellion, leads the creation into an act of rebellion, and then here we are. Uh, with with consequences. Okay, what else? Questions from that or new questions? I think you could also compare the I cast you to the ground to the uh, yeah. cast you down to okay, good. beyond good, your belly good. and eat dirt. Um, that's in Gospel of Luke, right? What chapter? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, turn over there. That's, that's a good uh, connection. Did you get to that in your class last week? No. Okay. Uh, I know we had talked about it. Uh, Luke chapter 10. Uh, we talked about this two summers ago I, we, when we did the uh, Ask Him Anything series. This is one of the questions. Uh, Luke 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This is Jesus sending out... Uh, 72 or 70, but that's a whole nother thing. Uh, sending out two by two in the what we call the limited commission. 
Uh, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So they're going out, they're casting out demons, all of these things. Uh, there's uh, there's a uh, scene in The Chosen where this discussion occurs and it goes exactly like it goes the way that I imagined that it would, uh, where Jesus is saying, hey, by the way, you're going to be able to do some of this stuff. What? <laughs> I'm going to cast these things? I'm going to... Uh, it's just a, it's a fun scene. Uh, but they go out and do all these things, and then you have this, this verse. Uh, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, uh, and they have this authority, power over the enemy and all of this. Power is an important word. Paul is going to draw on that a lot in Ephesians uh, about these things. Um, so you have a whole... You have a whole section here that means nothing if you don't understand the Jewish mindset, which is why we're spending a lot of time on that uh, in our classes. For them, the Messiah coming and sending these people out and those people acting on this, the Son of God's behalf here, though people aren't really sure if that's who this is yet, the people acting on his behalf are having authority to deal with the demonic presence and all of this stuff, that's an indicator of, hey, that's what we were looking for the Messiah to do. Could this be the guy? Like This is another puzzle piece for them uh, of understanding who Jesus is. Uh, but this whole idea of Satan's losing, he's being defeated, we're conquering over him. That's what they would be anticipating the Messiah to do, uh, is to set all those things right. Uh, and here we get that reference. Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's their theology because of Ezekiel 28. Uh, that's their belief because of Genesis 3 and 6 and uh, Genesis 11 as well. There's more we could go on with that. And we might, unless there's another question. I have lots of questions. So okay, I don't that's want to fine. give everyone else <laughs> Hey, that's fine. When we do this in the, the young family group upstairs, it's Lexi. So uh, that's how she gets, that's how she gets this question after question. So go ahead. Okay, so angels are described in Ezekiel 1 and in Revelations as these, you know, have wings and eyes and everything yeah. else, but yet we entertain angels down here. Yeah unaware and they made babies with these women yeah. so do they change form from heaven to here then that seems to be the case so even the ezekiel description um ezekiel 1 verse 10 as for the likeness of their faces each had a human face so there's even there's even like human element to it um uh, if you you should google this like biblically accurate uh, pit, uh, depictions of angels. Uh, it's terrifying. Like the, <laughs> the way they're described as looking, uh, you should you should look that up. Uh, and then you won't sleep well. So, uh, but check that out because uh, those images are interesting. Um, but uh, I, I think about things like the entertaining angels unawares is in Hebrews. Um, Hebrews is very much a Hebrew book. If, if you don't have an understanding of Old Testament, Hebrews is a lot of, okay, I don't really understand what this writer is saying, uh, because it's drawing on that very heavily. That's true of the Old Testament 
you know, 99% of the, the New Testament, but, you know, know your Old Testament. It's very important. Uh, but there in Hebrews, you have that, that reference, entertaining angels unaware. You also just have how elevated angels were, but then the Hebrew writer is saying, but you're, you're greater than those things. We'll get to that at some point. That being said, um, when you look at, uh, when we talked about Genesis 6, and we had a lot to say about it, but uh, when we talked about Genesis 6, and it's Genesis 18, just a few chapters later on when we're into Abram's story, he's sit, uh, Abraham at this point, he's sitting under uh, the tree there. This is right before Sodom, because it's two angels that are going to go into Sodom. Uh, when they're going into Sodom, they appear to be normal, everyday guys. Um, according to some show or movie, they had ninja moves or something like that. I can't remember which one it was. That's a really new one. That's a newer thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember that being a whole deal. Uh, so they might have looked like people, but secretly they were ninjas. Uh, and then secretly, secretly, they were angels. Uh, but we have two angels going into Sodom to pronounce the judgment there. And you have that discussion with, with Abraham. But prior to that, uh, you have the angels and... Uh, the Lord sitting there, uh, because that's the language that's used, uh, sitting there in Genesis 18 with Abraham, and Abraham says, we have guests, and they're just a very hospitable culture. We have guests. we got to get stuff cooking right now. we got to feed these, because it's what you did. Uh, not just Jewish people. That was the ancient Near East culture. You, you have a visitor. You treat them like family. Uh, that's how they operate. So they go and get all this food and everything, Chapter 18, verse 8, he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, set it before them, talking about these angels, uh, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So they're, they're, they look like people, they're doing people things, that seems to be what happens when they're, they're here. They walk into Sodom, they look like people, uh, just, that's, that's the indication. Uh, there is no, there is no, uh, nothing in the text when they get to Sodom that says, uh, you know, they looked like angels or exceptionally different. The people of the town that are so far gone at this point uh, who do the exact opposite of what Abraham has just done for them of treat them like family, all this. And it's like, no, you need to bring them out to us so we can do bad things with it. Just completely the opposite here. Uh, but they look like people there. So it, that seems to be the case. Uh, if the follow-up question is, does that still happen today? I don't have an answer, so don't ask that question, please, because uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. But the, the rules seem to, to uh, they, they seem to be able to look a certain way while they're here. Would that apply also because demons were angels? So does that mean that? <laughs> <laughs> were they? Um, all right. Uh, we're we're going to get to that in, I think, next week. Uh, I think next week's class is going to talk about where they believe demons originated from, and that's not just, we will look at some of the intertestamental, uh, inter-testamental literature, but uh, there are biblical reasons to think uh, that their conclusion is the case as well. Um, their thought process is the, not the angels themselves, but the offspring of them, the Nephilim and all of their descendant names, uh, of which there are many, and we'll look at that next week. Uh, that when those things were destroyed, because they were 
because they're kind of in a middle ground of spirit, yeah. like this spiritually being thing, but also physical. And so they kind of don't, they didn't belong there on the earth. So God says, destroy them. Uh, every nation that's commanded to be destroyed, wiped out entirely, by the way, uh, has those things in it. wonder if that's on purpose or not. Because um, not every nation is destroyed. A lot of them are said, just drive them out. Uh, why the distinction between the two? Because of those things. Next week. Um, <laughs> but when those things are destroyed, they kind of don't have anywhere to belong. Uh, and so the thought process for the Jewish people, and there is, uh, again, biblical reason to think that this is the case, uh, is that those things, when they died, their, their being continued to exist in this demonic form, or what they call demons. So not angels, but the offspring of those angels dying and then not going anywhere. Which, as we'll see next week, uh, as Moses, Joshua, and David conquer the giant things, here comes Jesus, who is connected to Moses and Joshua and David, uh, the, you know, the king and the savior and the, the giver of the law. Jesus is all those things. Well, he's repeating what they're doing in that way too, wiping all the demons out and finishing the job because that's what they would expect the Messiah to do. There's a really cool connection there with all of that stuff. I forgot what your actual initial question was, so I can wrap that up. Okay. Uh, the, those seem, those th- uh, demons seem to be the dead offspring of the angel things uh, that get dealt with uh, throughout the New Testament and I think finished off. So if, the question, if there's a question, too, of does that still happen today, that doesn't seem to be the case. Lots and then none, and then demons, lots and then none. That's the pattern. We'll look more at that next week a little more. Okay. Other questions? Go ahead. So, so the book of Enoch, it, yeah. it goes more into detail about angels' descriptions and, and what they did. Yes. And the book of Enoch is also is in the Apocrypha, right? Uh, Pseudepigrapha, which uh, it's really semantics when you now, <laughs> get was, into it. Was this, was this in the Catholic religion within their book? So the Apocrypha is, in, is considered canon, I think still, for the Catholic Church. I, I believe that's still true. Um, it was true at one point. In fact, it was within like the oldest sets of uh, King James translations. The Apocrypha was in there too. Um, it was not. Cons- it was they. They brought those things in, uh, but it was not considered authoritative when it was written. Unlike the rest of these Bible books, that's a whole discussion on how the Bible came to be, which is a good discussion. Uh, but we won't do that here because it's a long one as well. Uh, but it, they, they included those books uh, within their, their Bible. That's the Apocrypha, uh, hidden writings. Um, the Pseudepigrapha is like if you're writing under a pseudonym, you know, false name and all that stuff. Uh, Mark Twain, right, was uh, Samuel Clemens, right? Yeah. So that's his real name, but he went under the pseudonym of. Uh, and so... All of those books in the Pseudepigrapha are not written by the individuals. Like Enoch didn't write Enoch. One through three, four. There's a lot of Enoch's, uh, a lot of Enoch books. He didn't write that. They didn't believe that he wrote that. But because of the content that's being written there, which is very spiritual in nature, 
who better to write that than Enoch, who got carried up by, you know, he, he didn't see death, he got carried up, and so let's call it the book of Enoch. Because that makes the most sense as to who would know those things. So that's why it's called that. Uh, but it, it wasn't believed to be written by him. They didn't believe it was authoritative, but it does reveal how they thought. Their, it does reveal their theology on all of these things. Uh, Jubilees, by the way, is another uh, pseudepigraphal book. It also goes into detail, like Enoch does, uh, so, on Genesis So basically 6. everything that was written in the, in the book of Enoch, even though it wasn't written by him, like the Jews actually believed that all that stuff happened as far as the angels. Yeah, uh, that that was their thought process so about how this worked. Isn't it added to the Bible if this is, like, if this is what they believe? Uh, because, the, because uh, though even those things may be true, um, and Jude even quotes Enoch and alludes to... Uh, uh, the Assumption of Moses, which is another book. Uh, he alludes to that, and Peter, and Second Peter, uh, seems to kind of indirectly quote Enoch as well. Uh, there may be truth in those things, but it's not all, it's not all inspired truth and all that, so it's not in there. Um, people people kind of get weird over the Jude directly quotes Enoch, and so why isn't First Enoch in our Bibles? Uh, it seems very much like when Paul quotes from poets or other things like that. What they said was a truthful thing. Uh, he quotes 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, he quotes in Acts 17, uh, a, a poet and, and playwright there. Uh, he quotes in uh, Titus, uh, a secular uh, writer at that time as well. But it doesn't make all their work inspired. It's just that thing was truthful. It wasn't one of the ones he quoted Greek. It was a. It wasn't a Greek poet. It wasn't even. <clears throat> I think so. So Jewish. there's. Uh, uh, so there was a guy from Crete, in the First Corinthians ten passage. Uh, I want to say it's like bad company corrupts good morals is the the idea, um, and then Acts seventeen. Can't remember who that's for. Um, Amander, but I don't remember where he's from. Uh, and then another Cretan in Titus uh, is who's quoted. Uh, so he's using, I mean, just people of the day. Like if I get up and quote a movie and like, hey, this line is truthful. Well, that doesn't mean it's all truthful or inspired or anything. Uh, but something can hold a truthful weight. Like what Caiaphas says uh, about it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to be destroyed. True. He meant something else when he said it, but John says he's right in this way. He thinks it's right this way, but it's actually right that way. But everything Caiaphas said is not recorded for us because it's not inspired. Uh, but that was a truthful statement, and so John uses it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. or, okay. What else? We've got this recorder says 35, so we got time. Haven't heard a bell yet. I just want to what, go back to question one. <laughs> that was one. Okay. I'm still confused on, uh, just to clear it up right quick, Yeah. on the small <laughs> right g-gods. Yeah, okay. Are those real <laughs> spiritual beings that yeah. people are, are worshiping? I think so, yeah. Okay, Nebuch I could ask this Thursday, but Nebuchadnezzar, he, he, he recognized <laughs> the one true God, yeah. but he was still worshiping these other... Yeah. Okay. So these other things, according to Psalm 82, right? And that's that's probably a good place to, to turn if we want to turn there. Um, Psalm 82, according to Psalm 82, just to 
orient ourselves to kind of our, our base camp here. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Uh, how long will you, and that you is plural. So uh, uh, in both places, if we wanted to say it in the Hebrew for the one Hebrew word here that I know off the top of my head, Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. Elohim is a plural word always, but uh, with the first occurrence, it's uh, has taken is singular. So the the plural has done the singular thing. It's connected to it. So we know that, oh, that's that's the three in one God. He's three, but he's one. That's That's Israel's God. Israel's Elohim. Uh, but in the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. How long will you, plural, judge unjustly? Uh, that's multiple things. So we know that that's going on just from the, the grammar and all of this. And then as we go through it, we see what they're doing. Give justice to the weak and followers. Maintain the right. Rescue the weak. Deliver them from... And they're not doing those things, so they'll be punished. So Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the other gods that he's following, are going to be leading in the wrong direction uh, towards injustice and all those things. Nebuchadnezzar, however, is open to the change of some other thing. Uh, and he, from chapters 2 through 4, more and more orients himself to this God, ultimately getting to his God most high. It doesn't say he is the only one. It's he's above all of the others, which was standard thought anyway. Uh, but he's above all the others. And if that's true, then over time, as he's following that one, uh, the actions and behaviors that the others are leading in will diminish and get out of the way. So you have the one left. But was Baal... What was he? I, I think I think it's an actual entity that has some amount of power. In fact, let's talk about Baal. Because I, I thought some of these were kind of myths. Uh, sure, sure. And there, there, there may be some of this that uh, over time is distorted, corrupted in other ways, that sort of thing. You know, as stories are passed on, uh, dealing with largely oral societies as they're passing things on. Um, they're going to be twists and turns to all that stuff. But then as you look at various cultures, a lot of their the beings they worship overlap in a lot of ways. Greece and Rome, but then also uh, Asian deities in those mythologies as well as like Norse mythologies. So why the overlap? Egyptian. Becomes, so are those Egyptian little as well. gods created beings? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So an interesting side with anthropology studies too is that Almost every single culture, and I can't think, I've been trying to think of one, I cannot think of a single one that, where there is not a, at least one that seems to sit on top. There, there's, yeah. there almost every single culture, every one of them, and a lot of people are like, well, but there's this very polity, there's, <laughs> but there's, a, there's multiple, there's almost always one that seems to be the oldest, the original, the, yeah. the one that sits over all the rest. There may be very, very even keel you know, eventually, but there was always the oldest one or something like that. And all those underneath were something that, like you said, were, were probably created, yeah. manifest over, right. over time. Uh, so the, the thought would be is these, these gods are given dominion, but they have the responsibility of you, you lead these groups in the way that I'm in a, in a, Good creation, uh, okay, in a good creation, 
they're just following after God. We don't need to get into all this other junk. Uh, they didn't do that. Uh, so, uh, in the next part of the good of that, you have uh, you have let's try again, and they don't do that. That's Genesis uh, nine after the flood, uh, and so you end up in Genesis eleven with the tower. And so God from there says, all right, here's how we're going to do this for you people. Uh, I'm going to be the God of this nation, not because they're better than everybody else, but because through them, I'm going to bring all people back to me. Because if I just if I just continue to be your God, you're going to keep doing the Adam and Eve thing. You're going to keep doing the Cain thing. You're going to keep doing the, the flood people thing and all that stuff. So he puts these other gods over, and now the ideal there for them is you lead them like I'm going to lead Abraham here. They don't have the same exact ability in all of this, but lead them in justice and righteousness and all those things. They don't do that. And so Psalm 82 says, I'm going to have to destroy you. You They they sought power in the same way that we might do the same thing. Uh, Position of authority and just try to get greedy and, and rise more. I don't know if that's getting to your question or not. Okay. It also you tied into with uh, the temptation because it's always been intriguing that that Satan offers the nations to to Jesus. Yes. I mean, why wouldn't he already? Uh, The the third and final in in Matthew's wilderness temptation, and again, wilderness. That's that's another place. That's not a good place to be. Uh, He's in the wilderness getting tempted by Satan. Here, imagine that. Uh, We've seen that Day of Atonement kind of language there. Uh, you don't want to be in the wilderness. And he's tempted by Satan. And the last of the three is uh, on top of a mountain. I'll give you all the nations of the world and all of this, which is very Genesis 13 of Abraham. You know, look at all that this will all be yours. Satan can't give that. But that is what Jesus is there to do. He's there to bring all this stuff back together. Uh, and so that, that temptation is a real temptation. Uh, that, I mean, it's called a temptation. Jesus is tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He was tempted right there without having to go through the cross and all the other things leading up to it of, hey, you know, you can accomplish the mission right now. I know this is what the Son of God's supposed to be doing. That's a real temptation. And he's, he says no uh, and shuts it down. Uh, but that's a real temptation for him. Uh, and that whole idea comes back to the Psalm 82, to Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 of... God's going to bring the nations back together through the Messiah, uh, and Satan seems to know that. Okay, we kind of got a little bit on something else. Real quick, I think we have a couple minutes. Any other questions? I just have a hard time. We said angels (laughs) uh, have free will. Yes. But they're with God. Yeah. I have a hard time because... I just, I don't know, I felt like, you know, when we die and we go to heaven, we're with God, we won't mm-hmm. want to sin, we won't sin because we're with God, but yet they were and still chose to sin. So, does that mean that... Yeah, what stops us from doing that yes. when, we, when we get there? So, the the best way, I think, uh, to talk about all of this... Uh, is, it's not brainwashing. Um, <laughs> the best way I think to think about uh, is, is narratively. So Genesis uh, 2 and 3, uh, we have noted for us the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Revelation 21 and 22, one of those two trees is there. We are post-decision. 
they, their pre-decision of don't eat from this, and then they do it because they're led by this thing that chose wrong as well, leading them in that way. When we get to the end of Revelation, it's you chose here now, right now. And that's the whole spiritual warfare thing that we are getting to, I promise. Uh, that's the, why the here and now is so important to understand who our real enemy is. Because we'll be post-decision then of I chose God and now I am with him fully. We're with him now too. Uh, but there's a fully... Uh, realized situation when we get there. Right now, you still have the option, though, to choose the evil. Um, and so we're struggling with that here, but when we get there, we're post-decision. Uh, we, we have reached the reward that we have been working and longing for here uh, at this moment. Okay, I'm sure there are more questions. We won't do this again, though, because I have too much to cover in the actual <laughs> class. But please uh, ask, ask away, text me stuff. Uh, buy me lunch, we'll talk, uh, all, any of those sorts of things, we'll make it happen. Uh, I love talking about this stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll have a prayer here uh, real quick and then uh, be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this day uh, that we have to come together each week to worship you and to study your word uh, beforehand. I thank you for those here, for the questions and for the uh, thoughtfulness and uh, thinking through uh, this very difficult topic, but a topic that is uh, threaded through uh, all of your word. And I pray that you help us to understand and, and grasp these things uh, and know uh, above all uh, that you are, uh, that you have conquered and are conquering and that we are uh, making our way uh, as we live for you now and uh, are connected to you now in fellowship and in family that we're making our way to a day uh, where sin and its consequences and we'll all be defeated and we'll be together uh, with you, uh, you as our God and we as your people, uh, fully, uh, without separation and without uh, chance for it as well. Uh, we love you very much. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.